Want to go ahead and uh, read the thing, Greg? I'm going to go ahead and read the thing. Okay. Snow Canyon State Park in the south of Utah is known for its wildlife, a handful of scenic trails, and easy access from State Route 18. Today, casual travelers are drawn to the park for its sweeping vistas across several sandstone canyons and photo opportunities beside a number of unique rock formations. But in the 1960s and 70s, a string of Hollywood westerns were filmed here, taking advantage of Snow Canyon's dramatic sandstone cliffs and bright blue skies as a backdrop for gunfights, stagecoach robberies, and cattle rustling. The peace and quiet of Snow Canyon today, however, is underwritten by a darker history. Only a few miles south across the state line in Nevada, the United States military conducted a series of Cold War-era nuclear test explosions at the Nevada Proving Grounds, a highly restricted patch of desert that was, when they were done, the most irradiated and lifeless place on the planet. For close to a decade, new and proposed nuclear devices were buried, parachuted, and simply dropped onto the bright red sands of the Proving Grounds, so that scientists could see firsthand how organisms and structures responded to blasts, irradiation, and fallout. Shortly after the largest test series concluded, a massive Hollywood production, no less than a John Wayne historical epic, with Howard Hughes at the helm and a $6 million budget, arrived at Snow Canyon to film a half-dozen battle scenes. For six weeks, cast and crew struggled with scorching temperatures and constant wind to complete the filming, they then trucked some 60 tons of the local dirt back to Hollywood to use on their soundstage, bringing with it an uncertain amount of nuclear fallout. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the filming of the Genghis Khan epic The Conqueror, and how the choice to film in scenic Snow Canyon may have drastically shortened the lives of its cast and crew. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, I'm the Executive Manager of Hollywood Productions here at Relative Disasters Corporation. <laughs> and I'm her brother Greg, Chair of the Slightly Irradiated Films Department here at Relative Disasters University. Oh, congrats on your promotion. Oh, thanks so much. It's uh, um, I'm positively glowing. Oh, no. No. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Beloved listeners, this episode is coming to you slightly late. This is our third recording. This episode is cursed. We're just going to get that out of the way. Uh, it's not cursed. It's Mercury. Mercury is in retrograde. There was nothing we could do, beloved listeners, uh, but record over and over and over. <laughs> yep. Yep. This is our third try, so uh, bear with us, and we hope that it is a quality recording. Having having done so much research for this, you must be a little sick of uh, the Hollywood that existed at this time. Uh, there's definitely a dark underbelly to this picture, and I think to the industry in general that... Um, and there still is. I wouldn't say people are unaware <laughs> of. Yeah, yeah obviously no. it's still around today, but... Yeah, this whole story really gets into the... <laughs> it just has everything. It does. And every time we re-record this, I go back over my notes and I'm like, oh, that's a weird thread. And I Google it and I find something else that's even more depressing and horrible about this story. It is Yay. not my favorite movie. It's the, uh, the, 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 
Petrushka doll of horrible sto- horrible movies. <laughs> There's always another horrible fact in there. <laughs> All right. I'm down to the really tiny ones, but they just keep getting worse. <laughs> okay. So today we are going to be taking a look at the undeniably awful yes. 1956 movie, yes. The Conqueror, yep. which was a box office hit and potentially the cause of several premature deaths among the cast and crew due to filming way too close, why not, to uh, nuclear testing grounds. Yeah. As you do. And uh, we need to begin by citing our primary source for this episode, which is the book with the best title ever. Yes. Who Nuked the Duke (laughs) (laughs) by John William Law. Really, all you need to know is in that title. Yeah. All right. So I thought we could begin with the major players. Yes. And our major, major player is uh, not only the star, but the major force in this movie's production, and that is... Marion Robert Morrison, yep. a.k.a. John Wayne, a.k.a. The Duke. Yep. Not a great nickname. I mean... Uh, we should probably get this out of the way at the beginning. Yeah. We are not giant fans of John Wayne. He was pretty awful. He was racist, xenophobic, giant fan of the House Un-Americans Activities Committee. Yep. Like, the worst idea Congress has ever had. Oh, no. No. We've had... We've had equally and and more ma- morally bankrupt things that we've done, but uh, you know, I was just thinking it's probably not even the worst thing no. in this episode. <laughs> but Joe McCarthy doesn't even make like the top ten of of like the worst things the American government has ever done. But the House on American right. Activities Committee was a horrible, horrible witch hunt that was carried out, and uh, the junior senator from Wisconsin kept claiming that he'd found a bunch of communists in uh the white house and in hollywood and they called a bunch of people to testify and your choices were ruin your career or ruin somebody else's uh john wayne was actually personal friends with joseph mccarthy i don't know if you knew that they golfed together yep yep but he had this whole persona this this hollywood persona of being a man's man and and square-jawed you know good good guy and it was entirely manufactured. He was not uh, not a good guy, unfortunately. In 1954, he's at somebody's office. He grabs a couple scripts. He brings them home and reads them. What captures his imagination is <laughs> a script for a movie about Genghis Khan. Yes. John Wayne has been trying to break out of this kind of American manly man archetype that okay. he has been cast in forever that he does really well in he's getting a little bored he wants to show that he has range he does not have range this is a terrible idea yes uh but for some reason the story really speaks to him and he thinks this is how i can get people to understand that i'm a serious actor that i can play anybody and he falls in love with this script if you're unfamiliar with john's (laughs) career He's not famous for playing Mongol warlords. He's famous for playing, like, characters in the Old West, uh, gunslingers, sheriffs, ranchers, cowboy roles, uh, military officers. So in a John Wayne movie, he's always going to be, like, this slow-talking, big-shouldered, kind of emotionless guy. And it's just a weird match, right? Genghis Khan is, of course... You think that part is the weird match? (laughs) Yeah, this is like the hinge on which the whole movie yeah. develops into a the Farce. movie that it ends yeah. up being. No, it, it's it's <laughs> I'm trying to be kind. Anyway, 
John Wayne reads this script. He loves it. He tells the director-producer attached to the project that he wants to do it. Now, that's Dick Powell, right? Yes, that is Dick Powell. Dick Powell is, at this point, an established voice and movie. He's done a lot of TV. He's an actor. Yeah. Um, And he's trying to transition into directing, and he's fresh off his first movie with RKO Studios. His first movie was a hit. And then he does this. (laughs) What he's trying to do is, like John Wayne, show that he has range and he can handle these big-budget historical epic projects as well as the smaller, more dramatic project that he just finished. Yep. He is not sure that John Wayne is the right star for it. And he's completely correct. However... And he is... Yeah. (laughs) The movie's not going to get made without him. (laughs) He was actually campaigning for Yul Brynner. Really? And, uh, yeah. And uh, Marlon Brando was his second choice. All right, so RKO, <laughs> the movie studio, <laughs> not a corporate sponsor of this podcast. No, no. Uh, at this time, it is currently owned by multimillionaire eccentric Howard Hughes. Yep. I'm so surprised that we haven't done an episode where Howard Hughes has popped up before because he was involved in some interesting mid-century disasters. Uh, but at this point in his life, he has been an aviator, he's an engineer, he's an investor, he's invented things, he's owned a bunch of companies. Yep. But a few years ago, he really got the bug to become a studio head. Yes. As you do. And he has bought a bunch of shares, and he has kind of owned controlling shares in RKO for seven years at okay. this time. Okay. You'll be surprised. He is a total disaster of a boss. Yeah. He was also extremely anti-communist. Yeah, which is why he and John Wayne got along. (laughs) They were great friends. And uh, over the years, he has fired about three quarters of Archeo's staff because he suspects that they might have communist leanings. Not that they are communists. Right. Like, not that they're card-carrying members of the Communist Party, that they might have sympathies with communism. Yeah. And he can just do that because he's Howard Hughes. And he wants to make a hit movie. Yeah. So he is like, he hears John Wayne, he hears Genghis Khan. He's like, let's do it. Sure. Uh, And then he says, I have the perfect female lead. Now, Howard Hughes. Yeah. He really enjoyed dating actresses. Is dating the right word there? Yeah. I I feel like it's not the right euphemism here. Yeah. He's uh, involved with. Currently involved with the actress Susan Hayward. Yes. And we should point this out as well that, you know, Susan Hayward uh, not only is not of of Asian descent, but uh, what, is, what is Susan Hayward's most prominent feature? Her, her flaming red hair. Yes. Which she is. She has a famous redhead. Yeah. Like Lucy Ball. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but also, Greg, she is a respected actress. She really does yeah, not she, belong in yeah. this movie. <laughs> no, but she's going she's, through some tough times right now. Yes, she's going through a nasty divorce. She yep. needs money, frankly. Yeah. She's trying to get custody of her kids. Yeah. And uh, she's dating Howard Hughes, which shows that she was not in a great mind space. Uh, yeah. She goes ahead and signs on to this movie. Yep. So now they have a script and an all-star cast that gets even better when, who else, Agnes Moorhead signs on as uh, John Wayne's character's mother. Do you know she's like seven years older than John Wayne? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, Hollywood. And Mexican film star Pedro Armendariz is hired to play Genghis Khan's 
best friend and sidekick. Again, (laughs) they were just expecting that once you got in the theater and were looking at the costumes, like you would know that that person was supposed to be. Yeah. I don't know, a Mongol warrior, but uh, not not to the point where you would actually be unsettled by something too realistic. right? Right, right. Yeah, they didn't want to offend your delicate sensibilities by actually casting people of, you know. And this is a very diverse cast. It like, actually this is. A very is. <laughs> interesting and diverse cast. It's just not. And not by the kind of diversity yeah, that you would true. expect from that's reading true. the script. I also want to point out that one of my all-time favorite uh, Western and B-movie actors uh, is in a mm-hmm. small role in this film. The the wonderful Lee Van Cleef is yes. in this movie. If you've only seen him in his, uh, you know, uh, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly films, I highly recommend a terrible, terrible TV show from the 1980s called Master Ninja. So the script is by an English screenwriter named Oscar Millard, who also yep. wrote Angel Face. Yeah. I don't know if you ever saw that. It's a kind of noir classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. Um, the whole thing is approved by the studio, which is essentially Howard Hughes. Yep. And uh, they greenlight the whole thing. The budget is massive. Yeah. All they need to do now is find a place to shoot that's going to look like the Gobi Desert. Not like the Gobi Desert in a way that's going to make you uncomfortable as a moviegoer. Right, right. Like a desert you've seen before. So now (laughs) let's shift focus to Nye County, Nevada. Yeah. The U.S. military has just, in 1951, bought a little patch of desert to develop and research nuclear devices, particularly atomic nuclear bombs. Yep. Uh, This site is developed under the name Nevada Proving Grounds. Now it belongs to the Department of Energy, and it's known as the Nevada National Security Site, N2S2, Greg. Okay. That's our new code word for uh, get me out of here, this party is horrible. Ah, N2S2. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. I was going to say, it sounds it sounds like a failed Star Wars droid, like, you know. <laughs> the, uh, oh, I like that. It's, it's, the, it's the droid who blew, blows up next to... Uh, Next to R2-D2. It's, oh no, N2-S2. It's got a yeah, protocol a droid model. who follows him, but <laughs> instead of talking in, like, you know, the Anthony Daniels posh British accent, it's, uh, it's like, drawling like John Wayne or something. I don't know. Aww. Got a whole got a whole fanfic universe going on in my head right now. <laughs> the, the, the trials and travails of N2-S2. All right, so the U.S. has had the technology for these nuclear weapons since the Manhattan Project in the early 1940s. And of course, they have just used them to kill a quarter million people in Japan in 1945 at the end of World War II. Yep. I don't know if you knew this, and I was really unsettled to learn this, but the bombs that the U.S. dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were experimental. Really? They were just like, we think this will work. So, since those bombs were experimental, both explosions left military scientists with lots of questions, such as, what happens if that kind of explosion happened underground? Okay. Uh, What would happen to animals exposed to atmospheric explosions? Mm. How does the weather affect nuclear fallout? Mm -hmm. What if we made a bomb ten times the size of the one we dropped on Hiroshima? How would that go? These guys are so enthusiastic about building and dropping bombs that they detonate something like a thousand test devices in 41 years that the site is active. Oh, yeah, they love it. They can't get enough. You'd think, like, five, ten, maybe, would get them the amount of data they need or could ever want. A thousand? They had a lot of money. 
Fair they enough. had a lot of time. They had a lot of space because they're out in Nevada. Uh, yeah. But if you're picturing the middle of the desert with hundreds of miles of empty space around it, that's, that's exactly not the case. what I'm picturing. No. Yeah. What? No, the Nevada Proving Grounds is 65 miles outside Las Vegas. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and okay. the closest town, it's right on the Utah border. Okay. And the closest town in Utah is called St. George. Okay. Now, from both these places, you can feel the seismic shock from a blast and see mushroom clouds, which I can't imagine how unsettling that would be to be walking down the strip in Las Vegas and glance to your left and, hey, it's a mushroom cloud. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Unsettling. Yeah. God. All right. (laughs) So for some reason, uh, Las Vegas is mostly unaffected by the fallout. Okay. The fallout mostly blows north, so it affects the people living in St. George and southern Utah. Okay. There are some real horror stories about the ranchers and the livestock who are living between the Proving Grounds and St. George. Oh, no. Apparently, it's like animals dropping dead, yep. uh, animals delivering young with massive birth defects, yeah. uh, water going bad. Sounds delightful. I'm a squeamish person. Yeah. And uh, that kind of stuff. I read a, a lot about it, and it just was not pleasant. There's there's a lot of squeam to be had in that. A lot of squeam. The people living in St. George are not getting sick as dramatically as the animals. Okay. But they're developing certain cancers at a rate well above the national average. Oh, okay. Yeah. Let's see. I read two studies that picked out leukemia and bone cancer. Those are 5 and 11 times higher, respectively, than the national average during the 60s and 70s. Huh. So it's a it's a pretty dramatic and obvious cancer cluster. Yeah. Um, I would say like up through the 80s, people were still like, well, we just don't have enough data. <laughs> oh, you know, I love that ongoing. excuse. <laughs> That's my favorite. just not sure. It's so great because it applies to everything. Oh, well, the world's heating up. We just don't know yet. Uh, uh, smoking is bad for you. Actually, the facts aren't completely in. It works for everything. There's, you know... I hate this, Ella. (laughs) There's a lot of debate, like I would say even through the end of the 1980s, about how much fallout that area received. People were still going, well, I'm just not sure, and looking at things like the tap water and the soil samples and, of course, that dramatic cancer cluster, even through the... Through the 80s. In the 90s, things go in a different direction. We'll talk about that later. Okay. Uh, everything was great. Yeah. The U.S. was just, like, practicing some super fancy weapons. Nothing to just see here. Nobody needs to worry. Yep. <laughs> Nobody needs to worry. The series of test explosions that were going on in the first half of 1955 was known as Operation Teapot, which I feel like is the wrong name for this. Yeah. You want, like, Operation Apocalypse or... Operation Doomsday. Yeah, Doomsday's a good one. Teapot. Teapot kind of, you know, conjures imagery of men with thin mustaches and delicate cups sipping gently. <laughs> right? That My was... mom loves a good cup of tea. Yeah. 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 Okay. Ugh. But for some reason, <laughs> this is called Operation Teapot. It is a series of 14 nuclear test explosions. The aims of the operation they had a bunch of different things they were studying and looking at the main thing that they were looking for was how to this to me is 
God, it just makes my head hurt. Okay. Okay, so <laughs> they're imagining a future in which nuclear weapons exist alongside ground infantry. So they're kind of trying to come up with tactics that uh, soldiers could use <laughs> on the ground what? during a nuclear explosion. That was the purpose of Operation Teapot. I, I think this really speaks to the scientific military mind at the time, was that mm-hmm. they just did not understand how incredibly devastating this actually was. Right. Like I mean, maybe this is the reason why we know now that... Uh, Nuclear explosions are really dangerous, and you shouldn't be near them. Yes, thank goodness they tested that so that we'd find right? out. I'm, I for one, welcome, welcome such scientific <laughs> diligence. A thousand test explosions, and now we know they're super dangerous. Okay. <laughs> that press conference must have been hilarious. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen I of mean... the press, nuclear bombs are bad for you. Uh, no questions, no questions. So this is the series of tests where they just went all out. They built houses, they parked cars in the driveway, they put mannequins on the furniture. Okay. Um, they put canned goods in the pantries to see how canned goods were affected. They actually filmed all of these tests. Okay. And you can watch them on YouTube or other video hosting sites. Yeah. Uh, the thing that always occurs to me is that you can tell that someone is running the camera. they're way too close they're like zooming in and panning around you're like dude the mushroom cloud is right there what are you doing okay anyway uh so you know they were just incredibly cavalier about this testing and after these tests wrap up the military had absolutely no problem with this film crew coming and setting up right outside the proving grounds to uh film their movie sure they actually even provided geiger counters to the crew so that they could monitor the areas that they've been filming (laughs) okay that's that's actually pretty great there are these amazing publicity photos of like susan hayward draped over a geiger counter looking at it soulfully um they they sent like people with them to teach him how to use them right no why would they do that oh no what yeah they just like give him a care package (laughs) You can just imagine. Oh, my God. <laughs> it had, like, a welcome to Utah brochure. Sure, uh, sure, yeah. A roadmap, maybe, and yep. uh, some Geiger counters. So it doesn't know, like, I couldn't find anybody. You would think that someone would have been assigned to it, right? Someone on the film crew was like, hey, we have these Geiger counters. I'm a little nervous. Could you, like, keep, yeah. keep an eye on the level as well? Yeah. I just don't think it happened. It's not mentioned in the book that I read, and I can't find any mention of it. I think they just, like set them aside and carried on okay uh and as we mentioned in the intro the place where they end up in the gobi desert air quotes is called (laughs) snow canyon yes snow canyon is beautiful right it's a ton of like stunning rock formations dramatic cliffs and mountains the whole thing is covered in dust okay and you get these like sweeping vistas that is going to look amazing in cinemascope yes it's one of the first movies that was filmed in cinemascope can i can i take like a two second sidebar on cinemascope because it's it's fascinating greg you can have two minutes if you want cinemascope is awesome so cinemascope was this uh lens process that they came up with um that allowed you to shoot these huge panoramas um, and it is one of the, if not the first widescreen that, uh, was developed 
for film. And uh, about the only thing about it that wasn't great is that uh, some some colors could get washed out uh, while other colors really would pop much more than they would in other, uh, like in Technicolor, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> because the the lens the lens set that you'd be using to film in Cinemascope was so uh, tailored for Cinemascope, you would actually lose uh, resolution the closer somebody was to the camera. So, like, if you oh, tried no. to film a close-up in Cinemascope, it would just look weird. the The person's face would be like all stretched out and weird looking. But Great but if you were shooting, yes, if you're shooting a battle scene at this time period, you really wanted Cinemascope. It was a it was a really cool invention, and it didn't it didn't really fall out of use until a lot of the more modern widescreen filming techniques and technology were developed. It was really cool. That's really interesting. Excellent use of your two minutes, Greg. Thank you. (laughs) Ding! So the shoot begins in June of 1954. Okay. Dick Powell is married to an actress named June Allison. Yeah. And she joins him on the shoot. She's just, like, taking a little vacation. She's between projects. And she writes about it in her memoirs. She describes the day that people started to arrive on location. Quote, It was full of bad omens. The wind seemed to be trying to tell them something and driving them away. The chartered plane carrying Richard, John Wayne, Susan Hayward, and a dozen other top actors almost crashed, and they landed only to find that their tent was in a shambles, destroyed by a 55-mile-per-hour gale. End quote. Oh my gosh. That's before they even start filming. Yeah. And things do not get any more comfortable, unfortunately. Yeah. The weather that summer is terrible. You know, it's so hot. There's a high of 120 degrees one day. Whoa. Please remember, everybody is in this, like, Hollywood version of Mongol armor. Yeah, yep, yep. Oh uh, my gosh, yeah. metal. Parts of it are made out of metal. So people are getting burned, right? Yeah, so the extras in the hot sun, like, riding their horses around, are oh, actually getting God. burned from their armor. Oh, no. uh, there's also a lot of wind. Okay. So the dust that these guys are kicking up on their battle scenes. Yeah. Uh, the crew has to actually wear surgical masks to keep it out of their mouths and noses. Oh the my actors God. complain about it constantly. It's almost impossible to keep the camera equipment, like the lenses, I guess, yeah, that's cleaned not up great. and working properly. Yeah. And then we need to spare a thought for the poor actors who are you know, not able to wear any kind of mask because they're in costume. Right. It's almost impossible to keep hair and makeup fresh in 120 degree weather and constant wind and constant dust. Yeah. One of the problems with this movie, okay, (laughs) (laughs) is that Susan Hayward as the female lead is expected to look perfect at all times. So she's not just being a princess and insisting on things that are not specified. Right. 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 In the script and in her contract expectations. Um, she wears like white dresses throughout, like long kind of slip type. Oh my god! Shiny white dresses. Okay. Um, she's in heels through most of this. What? Like in one scene. <laughs> in one scene. <laughs> John Wayne picks her up off the ground, and you can see her feet for a split second. She's wearing like dance pumps. <laughs> oh my god! Jeez. And of course, her red hair is in this like magnificent yep. roller set quaff with like yep. teasing and hairspray. 
and you know she can't get sweaty yeah like she can't shine yeah she can't have a shiny nose uh she can't sweat god bless okay oh my this god. is a lot the gentlemen don't have it quite as bad right they can get a little dusty because they're supposed to be manly warriors right john wayne his uh costume concept calls for a long wispy fake mustache <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is like, it, if you see stills from oh this my movie, God, you're like, it's so oh. bad. <laughs> it's like three hairs on either side of his mouth, and they're like nipple length. Oh, it's the worst. And that that had to be approved by somebody. Somebody sat somebody there and was like, that? "That looks really good. We should keep it." Somebody drew it, and then somebody else made it out of horsehair and glued it to his face. Oh my God. Yeah, Ugh. and uh, his makeup. Yeah. And they have taped his eyes back. All of the oh, characters, yeah. Come on. I think all of the men get their eyes taped back. They don't do this sure. to the women for some reason. The women still look very Western. Um, uh, yuck. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, we mentioned earlier this is a very diverse cast. Despite yep. the best efforts of the costume department, nobody actually looks <laughs> Mongolian or like they belong in the Golden Horde. They just yeah. look like different assortments of people in really heavy makeup yep a lot of pancake makeup <laughs> a lot of tape uh. costumes are like animal skins and uh leather sure you know they have a lot of helmets there's a lot of gilding there's a lot of like chain mail uh. and it's like chinese flavored it's weird it's just awkward and it weird. doesn't like relate to anything yeah you would ever see in a a well-researched historical epic that you would expect to see now. Well, uh, I mean, they spent a ton of money on it. Like, you would think they would have sunk some of that money into, you know, good costuming. I think it all went to, like, eyebrow tape and uh, <laughs> dance pumps. Greg, I'm sorry. I think that's what they spent most of their money on. Uh, uh, you're curious about the plot. Sure. Right? <laughs> no, but yes. The plot of the movie... <laughs> Revolves around Genghis Khan's capture and revolt. Yep. Uh, lots of battles on horseback. Lots of wide shots and beautiful cinemascope. Yep. Uh, there's lots of marching. Okay. They love, like, a marching scene. Okay. Okay. Hundreds of horses. Right? Guys falling off. Uh, John Wayne is, like, galloping around, slashing his swords. These are in the battle scenes. And I just want to be clear about this. John uh -huh. Wayne still looks like john wayne oh it's not that he still looks like john wayne it's that he has john wayne's voice so he's speaking in an american western accent like in his usual voice the voice that he uses in all his other movies yeah as genghis khan i but but he's still got that big broad midwestern like ham of a face it's right. just he happens to have horsehair glued to his lip and his eyes taped back. Taped down? I don't even know how to describe that. It's gross. It's into your hairline, so it's back, yeah. It's gross. That's all I'm saying. It's gross. It looks weird. It's like it's this like uncanny valley sort of thing where your brain is like, that is John Wayne. Why does his face look off? Yeah, it doesn't he still look... looks exactly like himself. Yes! It doesn't look like he... And it's weird. Because, like, have you seen makeup where they just do one or two things and the person looks completely different? That yes. is not the case here. No. Everybody in this movie looks like themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Just just off. It's bad. It's bad. It's just real bad. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And remember, they are, like, filming in the wind. 
they're stirring up all this dust. Yep. The dust gets so bad that at one point people notice that it's in the food. Okay. Like when you go get your sandwich, it's um dusty. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So the crew nicknames it Utah chili powder. No, I don't like that either. <laughs> like it at all. Um, the dust is like an absolute plague. I would say it's maybe not the worst thing. Maybe the heat, maybe the makeup is maybe the mo- less comfortable. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. Uh, love the foreshadowing. Mm. <laughs> but yes, the dust is just like an absolute plague. Ugh. But when all these grueling exterior shots are in the can, Dick Powell has the brilliant idea to take a little bit for the road. So he hires bump dump trucks. Okay. To carry 60 tons of the dust back to L.A. so that they can spread it around on their soundstage for continuity with the shots they're going to do there. Just to point this out, too, that must have been a nightmare for the film crew themselves because, Mm -hmm. like, literally the camera operators, because that kind of fine dust is going to get into your cameras and ruin them. Like, I can't imagine it's amazing shooting any film survived yeah. at all. <laughs> like, it's amazing Ugh. this movie actually gets released. Oh, spoiler. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so, of course, <clears throat> since they brought it all home with them, the actors and crew are still breathing it in for months more as they finish up the movie on the soundstage. And in the early winter of 1955, principal photography finally concludes. Yay. Did you forget about Howard Hughes? Nope. No, I didn't. Well, he is... What's he up uh, to? (laughs) He waits until this movie is done. Okay. And then he quits. He quits RKO. He doesn't like it anymore. Okay. He sells his controlling interest for a huge profit. And part of the deal that he makes as he leaves is that he gets the rights to his two favorite projects. Uh, Uh That's a movie called Jet Pilot, which is a Cold War epic starring John Wayne and Janet Leigh. And The Conqueror. He is so in love with this movie that he funds the marketing and a series of worldwide premieres for this thing. Like, out of his own pocket? Yeah. Okay. But remember, he's very wealthy. Yeah, 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 yeah. This does not bankrupt him, even though it probably should have. No. So he holds a premiere for The Conqueror in January of 1956, He releases it worldwide a couple weeks later. It doesn't actually do that badly at the box office. It's not the biggest hit of the year. Okay. But it earns a respectable amount of money. It earns $12 million on its $6 million budget. Okay. I mean, that's pretty darn good. It's decent, right? For that time period, yes. So the movie comes out, and people are going to see it. Uh, It's a huge draw. But critics were just eviscerating it at the same time. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> There's a lot to eviscerate there. Right? It's a ridiculous story. The sets and costumes are gross. The dance numbers. There's a huge like dance no. number with like bikini models in the middle. It, okay. It doesn't make sense. Uh, and John Wayne is running around saying he's Genghis Khan. Like, let's not overlook yeah. that. <laughs> John Wayne is probably, like, the thing that all the bad reviews come back to is that John Wayne is the worst casting choice possible. His interpretation <laughs> of the dialogue is just like... And the, the dialogue is the worst too. I mean, I, I've I've seen little snippets here and there, and it's real bad, folks. It's real bad. Now I don't want you to watch this movie. <clears throat> no, uh, but I want you to appreciate a little bit of what people 
had to do as they watched this movie critically to uh, review it. So I'm just going to read you my favorite lines. Ready? Uh, go. <laughs> These are all John Wayne's lines. Now, I'm not going to do a John Wayne imitation. Thank you. I'm just going to read them slowly so you can use your imagination. Ready? Okay. John Wayne as Genghis Khan in The Conqueror. <clears throat> I feel this Tartar woman is for me, and my blood says, take her. There are moments for wisdom and moments when I listen to my blood. My blood says, take this Tartar woman. Did you like that? No, I did not. Let me give you another one. No. Let me give you another one. <laughs> Come and take me, mongrels, if you dare. While I have fingers to grasp a sword and eyes to see your cowardly faces, your treacherous heads will not be safe on your shoulders, for I am Temujin, the Conqueror. No prison can hold me, no army defeat me. Did you like that? No! I hated every <laughs> moment of it. I think his worst lines are when he is talking about women. Yeah. Yeah. So let me give you one of those. Oh. While I live, while my blood burns hot, your daughter is not safe in her tent. Dude! I'm sorry, but nobody? Nobody? Okay. <clears throat> and I'm going to give you my favorite line. Ready? Okay. Sure. This is uh, Temujin. Genghis Khan. Yeah, yeah. Speaking about yeah. Susan Hayward's character, Wartai. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Ready? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Looking forward to it. She is woman. Much. <laughs> See, you couldn't even get through it. <laughs> oh, almost, almost. <clears throat> she is woman. Much woman. <laughs> Should her. You just have to picture a cowboy saying this. I know, I know, I know. He's like smoking a cigarette. Yep, yep, got the little neckerchief off spurs. to one side, yep. yep. <clears throat> uh, Alright, here we go. Do it. She is woman, much woman. Should her perfidy be less than that of other women? Is it perfidy? I mean, Never he used wouldn't... that word in conversation. No. Just gonna leave it as is, because uh, Do I don't think I can take that again with a straight face. No. Anyway, that is a sampling of the dialogue that critics were saying. Hey, this dialogue is not great. <laughs> <laughs> and they were right, folks. They were right. I'm gonna quote you the Times movie critic. Oh this is yes. A contemporary review. Yes, please. Quote: John Wayne's portrayal of Genghis is elementary. Although his appearance in wispy mustaches and Mongol makeup is a mite startling at first, he is soon recognizable. Once in the saddle, he is the rough-riding John Wayne of yore. It's just that he is constantly being unhorsed by such lines as, You are beautiful in your wrath. Yes, that's my favorite one in the whole thing. I just, I, how many takes did they have to, did they have to shoot? For him to say that with a straight face. I mean, knowing John Wayne probably won. He probably got it in one, but like... I don't think he sees anything funny in that. I no, think he's, like, no, I think he's dead serious. I think he delivers it as dramatically and uh, truthfully as he can. Yes, to the best of his ability. To the best of his ability. Okay. That's one of those, like, with all due respect things. Because sometimes the respect due is none. Anyway. 
Well, speaking of respect to you, uh, Howard Hughes did not lose a life-changing amount of money by any measure. No. RKO earned back the budget. Yep. Um, but Howard Hughes wasn't out to create a hit, right? No. He wanted he, to make a he great wanted movie. Art. Exactly. Yes. So the critical reviews really hurt his feelings, and the box office returns did not take that hurt away. After a year of publicizing and premiering The Conqueror, he bought up all the prints of the movie and just sat on them so it couldn't be shown again, except in his own house. <sighs> and in later life, as he got older and sicker, he watched yep. it obsessively, like once a day, according to some sources. Wow. that That's a hard way to live. Like, I, my, honestly, like, he did some awful things in his life and some very problematic views on a lot of things, but... Well, actually, in the 60s, in one of the weird, like, loops of this story, Howard yeah. Hughes ditches Hollywood for Las Vegas, right? Sure. He gets into the casino business, because he's already tried the movie business, and he was like, eh, I think I like gambling better. Sure, why not? So he starts buying up casinos, and at one point, he is the single largest employer on the Las Vegas Strip. Jeez. <laughs> right? Okay. <laughs> Since he lives in Las Vegas, now he knows more about the tests that are going on it at the uh -huh. Nevada Proving Grounds, yep. right? Yep. So he starts pouring his money into trying to influence the test bombings, which are still ongoing in the 60s. Like, They're not as ambitious as the ones that were going on like in the mid-1950s, but apparently they're still like shaking up Las Vegas and sprouting up mushroom clouds once in a while. Okay. Howard Hughes doesn't like it. At one oh. point, he offers President Lyndon Johnson a million dollars to stop the testing program. Um, he did what now? That's not how that's done. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Nope, not, not you generally. You gotta get a lobbyist for that, Howard. Yeah, you can't just offer a guy money. That's not mm -hmm. how this works. You can't give the president a suitcase full of cash. <laughs> I mean, you can. You just can't say you're We've doing it. We've been over this. Okay. Uh. Uh, anyway, Johnson turns him down. One would think, yes. <laughs> yeah, we can't have that. And in 1976, Howard Hughes dies of kidney failure aboard a flight from Acapulco to Houston. Yep. Howard Hughes never developed cancer that I could find. But okay. by the end of his life, he was certainly aware of the consequences of choosing to film in Snow Canyon and St. George. So this is where we're going to look at some really depressing, really large numbers. Okay. Okay, 220 cast members and crew worked on location during the Utah filming of The Conqueror. 91 people out of that 220 developed cancer between the end of filming and 1984. 46 okay. of those people died from it. So it's half the people who worked on the film got cancer and half of those died. Uh, that includes a number of the key players. So Dick sure. Powell dies of lung cancer in 1963. Yeah. The same year, uh, co-star Pedro Armendariz tragically completes suicide after learning that his neck cancer is terminal. Uh, Susan okay. Hayward dies really young of brain cancer. She's yeah. only 57. Oh. And Agnes Moorhead dies the following year of uterine cancer. John Wayne, who, like Dick Powell, was a chain smoker, is treated for lung cancer, treated really aggressively in 1964. Yep. He dies of stomach cancer in 1979. Okay. Statistically, it is possible yeah. that the radioactive dust that all these people breathed in for six weeks in the Utah desert had nothing to do with their cancer diagnoses and subsequent deaths. Sure. Some figures show that the cancer mortality rate for the cast and crew of The Conqueror compares pretty evenly to the average cancer rate of Americans at the time. 
Okay. I mean, uh, that makes especially sense. Especially when you consider lifestyle yeah. choices like smoking and red meat and heavy yep. drinking. Yep. Yep. The coincidence that people are troubled by is that you, if you consider the ages at which many of these people were diagnosed, some the, were decades younger yeah. than the average age of diagnosis for That was going to be cancers. my follow up was like, yep. it, did it have something to do with like Susan Hayward in her 50s? Like, my God. Yeah. So it's not. The fact that they develop cancer is not statistically unusual. But it is that they develop really tragic it so and young. sad. But yeah. they're developing it younger yep. than you would expect to see those cancers developing. Okay. Okay, but there's not enough of a correlation sure. to determine. Like, there's no smoking gun with this. Right, right. No, and that makes sense. I mean. And the numbers are high, but, you know, tragically, it's not. Not statistically. Not so high. Yeah. Okay. 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 So there were several lawsuits brought by the cast and crew um, or their surviving family members. Okay. But it doesn't seem like any of them were successful. Okay. However, six weeks filming in Snow Canyon does not compare to a lifetime spent drinking tap water in St. George, Utah. Yep. Right. Yep. So in the 1980s, military researchers finally concluded that nuclear fallout poses significant threats to human health. Really? Yep. Shocked. Shocked I am. It's a thousand yeah. nuclear test devices. Yeah. As I mentioned before, there is we don't see this dramatic cancer cluster in the cast and crew from the conqueror but we do see it in saint george okay right especially these cancers like leukemia and i think it's bone cancer is the yeah. other one that they're just statistically off the charts there should not be that many cases and they those are serious cancers so the military starts ramping down their testing programs and a bill is passed in congress providing compensation to the residents who have been affected to cancers linked to fallout that's passed in 1990. In 1992, following some pretty serious protests, the government announced that the testing has been concluded. Okay. So nobody is using N2S2 for nuclear bombs anymore. Right now it's being used for longevity testing. Do you remember during the Cold War when Americans made a ton of nuclear warheads? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're getting old. Yeah. This is like a rest home for nuclear warheads that are starting to rust and become uh, less stable. That's super uncomfortable. So that's fun. Uh, you can also take a tour of N2S2. Why? Come on. <laughs> no, Come I'm good. You. Uh, I can they think of several reasons right now. Oh, good. They give you like a little badge when you go in and if it turns red, you have to leave. <laughs> I watched a video. I'm sorry. It looks cool. I would go. Um. Cool. And then I would second guess every other health decision I made uh -huh. for the rest of my life. <laughs> On a final note, the film itself is still floating around. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if you know that Howard Hughes died extremely wealthy. He left a very messy will. Yeah. And it took a while to untangle and probate. But in 1979, I think Universal finally bought the rights to The Conqueror. They showed it on TV for a few years. I think yep. Dad mentioned he saw it on TV at some point. I was like, Weird. are you sure? And he was like, yeah, it was John Wayne in, in uh, Chinese makeup. <laughs> in It kind of floated around for a few years on TV. I don't think it was theatrically released. 
Why would it be? (laughs) Why would it be? And I don't know that it ever came out on VHS, but in 2012, it was released on DVD, and there are bits and pieces of it available on YouTube if you're genuinely curious. I would say the trailer is worth watching, just Uh, as a period piece. uh And you really get to see the CinemaScope in action, because they start out with this amazing, like, panoramic view of Snow Canyon. Okay. Okay. So I would recommend that. I would not recommend the full movie. Okay. It's weird and sad. Uh, and that is the weird, sad tale of the Conqueror. Did you love it? Nope. I feel, I feel like, like I need. You did. <laughs> I feel like I need one of those, like you know, ir- ir- irradiated shower things. A silkwood shower. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Gross. So, although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to know more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us publicly, why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. You know he always has good taste. What's it going to be, Greg? (laughs) So next episode, uh, we are going Mm -hmm. to be taking a look at an election. An election whose results, even though indisputable, were in fact disputed by the losing party, uh, which refused to concede, and uh, it led to armed violence. That's right, folks. We're talking about the 1909 election in Zion, Illinois. Really? Oh, yes. This is a... We're going to be taking an extremely deep dive. This is, a, this is an, an incredible story. We're going we're gonna to take a deep dive into the political climate of the time, how the election was conducted, why it was disputed, and uh, how, in the end... American democracy prevailed, but it it definitely showed the cracks in the system. So it's going to be fun. That's hitting a little too close to home for me. No. No, No, it'll be good. good. (laughs) Nothing to do. There are no modern parallels. Edit that out. Come on. Uh, That sounds like an amazing disaster. I can't wait to talk to you about that.